Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. back everybody to hashing it out as always i'm your host dr Corey petty and my co-host today is dean eigenman say what's up everybody dean what's up everybody dean dean you've ruined it you've ruined Fuck. it we have to make a new thing now anyway <laughs> uh guest today you've heard him before you'll probably hear him again uh we're talking with ava labs and from them we have uh stefan Budolf. how do you say your last name Budolf? uh yeah, so Stephen Budolf. Yeah, it's like Butolf. Rudolph, but with a butt in front of it. Yeah, nice. You, <laughs> <laughs> you said that before. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And Kevin Seknicki. Why don't we start off by allowing you guys to introduce yourselves? Kevin, you start, and we'll go with Stephen after that. Hey, yeah. So yeah, I have been on this uh, show before. It seems like uh, I just can't go away. But you also can't. You you guys keep bringing me here, so it's it's your fault. Uh, to, to your audience listeners that are tired of me already, blame Corey, not me. Hey, you've been an uh, so, inside man for so long. <laughs> Again, blame Corey. Um, the uh, yeah, so a uh, very brief introduction. I'm uh, Kevin Sekniki, a uh, background uh, uh, in, uh, in tech, initially in cryptography. Uh, can't was into cryptocurrencies way, way, way pa- uh, back ago. Uh, got in it uh, basically a few months after the client came out, but was never really in the crypto Twitter circles for a very long time. Uh, got involved in cryptography research, then went to my PhD, did the distributed systems research. And then um, went on to work uh, on the on the business side of uh, of things with uh, with Ava, and uh, do mostly business side things nowadays. But uh, obviously, I have a technical background, so I get involved as much as I can on the technical things nowadays. But it's not much. Uh, Stefan, what about you? Oh uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Stephen Butoff. Uh, so I got into crypto around in high school. Uh, I implemented like a little like margin trading, like um, trading bot on like Poloniex in like high school. And so that's like how I got in, like right around the time like ETH was first starting to launch. Um, and then uh, and then I went to Cornell University and uh, uh, took a couple of Goons classes and kind of got more interested in uh, both what he was doing and also kind of the space on a more technical side rather than financial. Um, and so then uh, I, I started doing research with Goon, and then uh, he put me on to implementing a Go version of the Avalanche protocol, uh, which has turned into the uh, the Gecko client for Ava. And so uh, so that's basically where I where I've been working for the past like two years in August, I guess. So yeah, I kind of feel like Goon's previous comp sci curriculum was a recruitment machine for Ava. Am I wrong there? Um. I don't know. Like he, <laughs> he did a lot of like he did a lot of system stuff, which is like uh, very related, but not specifically like blockchain related. But he did teach specifically a uh, a cryptocurrency blockchain like intro course, which uh, I, I feel like he was definitely looking to like you know feel out the crowd and see both like the interest level in it and also like if there's like any people to do research but yeah, you don't know, get me wrong i'm not you, i'm not saying to... that as a negative thing that's a that's oh, a yeah, perfect no. pool of people to be choosing from and trying to get people to work on distributed I mean, systems uh, if if uh if ava labs is any uh any indication i think we have quite a few uh ex cornell people so you know we've, we've definitely used uh goons goons outreach there so yeah for sure were All you right, part so, of ic3 Stephen? Uh, i actually wasn't part of ic3 uh so uh i'd like since like starting research with goon i've i've done like more ic3 things but i actually was not part of ic3 before working with goon yeah so i think it it's it's reasonable um before we start diving into any technicals or changes or what's going on right now with ava labs to give a brief kind of technical landscape of what ava is 
and how it differentiates itself from the other um, open permissionless blockchains. Steven, do you want to take that? Uh, yeah, so I'll start, and I'm sure that you'll have a, a bunch of play. Yeah, of course. So, uh, so AMA first uh, differentiates itself with its consensus protocol, which I know we've talked about a lot before um, on, on at least previous episodes of this, but I'll, I'll give a very brief overview of essentially it's you know, highly scalable both in throughput and also in the uh, uh, in latency and the number of participants uh, that can participate in consensus. So. The first kind of main idea that that started Ava was the consensus protocol. Now, since then, um, we've also branched out into this idea of uh, subnets or like heterogeneous or a heterogeneous network. Um, and so that allows us to uh, kind of scale not just like on like consensus speed sides, but also it allows people to kind of develop their own personalized uh, network. So. For example, we uh, we are able to port the EVM so easily because we can essentially just have a wrapper around an existing EVM implementation and then use Avalanche consensus with that. And so we can port things into Gecko in a relatively easy manner because of how we've structured our subnets. And so that lets people not just uh, you know have, have a very fast infrastructure, but also a very flexible one. So someone could implement their own virtual machine that has kind of arbitrary business logic that's specific to them. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so those are, those are like the two technical side. Um, and then uh, I think Kevin can talk a lot more about like the business side and how we're kind of like pitching to, to be unique in that aspect. But I think uh, from the architecture side, we're, we're kind of pushing towards like, uh, you know, a very, a very flexible infrastructure, both on the consensus and on the engine side. Yeah. So, yeah before Kevin, before Kevin goes, I want to, I want to try and reiterate something that's I think is incredibly important about um, the, what, what Ava is doing, um, and that is it's a it's it's a marked distinction between consensus and the underlying data or or, mach- or like machine state, right? Most open networks right now, those two things are like intrinsically married. Like like the consensus relies on the state and the change of state, whereas uh, cons- like Ava and its differentiation is consistence is its own thing and then you can have other like a bunch of different machines rely on that consistence engine yeah exactly yeah, yeah. That, that's basically exactly right uh it's programmability not just at the application layer which is what other smart contract platforms do allow you to do already uh it's also programmability uh, uh at layers below that at the network stack effectively in the data stacks which is a which is an important property um so it, it allows us to do some interesting things that uh are very difficult from for for others. Um, I mean, one of the most important things that we want to make sure is that we build a smart contract platform that capitalizes on the value of the applications built on top. Uh, this is something that Ethereum, for example, doesn't do. Um, you know, I can, if I issue a um, uh, let me let me call it a a low velocity, uh, high longevity uh, type of asset, something like um, you know real estate or land title or something like that. Um, that uh, on Ethereum uh, looks no different than, forgive my uh, nomenclature here, but uh, any regular old shitcoin. Um, it uh, accumulates the same fees. It does not. Uh, it is not guaranteed to be different from any other uh, uh, coin that does maybe has no value whatsoever to it. And we're trying to capitalize on this problem in a way that provides or that gives the issuers of assets and you know creators of smart contracts on our platform. The ability to to effectively divide uh, the the guarantees a little bit more at a higher granularity or lower granularity rather, uh, it's it's about um, uh, you know giving somebody that is issuing these applications that or these assets that have uh, you know very high longevity needs uh, and high security needs. Uh, it gives them an ability to pay much much larger fees to be stored for a very long period of time and be very secure. Versus something that maybe is just you know not very high uh, value and needs uh, maybe much higher speed and uh, much lower fees, so this is something that we allow that Ethereum doesn't quite allow, um, and uh, and this actually goes down to the to the Ava token design as well. So in Ethereum, the the problem is uh, it does not uh, you know if I issue a new token uh, or if I build a really successful application on Ethereum, 
Uh, yeah, fees out uh, are paid uh, in ETH, which is great, but down to the miners, and nobody else benefits from the fact that there is usage of uh, of these uh, of this of this token on uh, on the system. Uh, it's actually uh, it, it's actually quite a big uh, problem for Ethereum. I mean, you have so much value being built on Ethereum uh, that Bitcoin could never could ever dream of right now. And none of it is really being capitalized at the value that it should be capitalized by the by the underlying Ethereum token. Um, you know, our design has been more of the you know the, the the design that we've taken is more of the the one that says, look, this is a cap supply token like Bitcoin. And uh, whenever you do operations that require things like creating of new blockchains and paying for transaction fees and so on, they burn. AVA tokens and the burning of AVA tokens uh, ultimately creates scarcity in AVA, and so that capitalizes on the underlying, uh, on the underlying token of the of the system. So that's an in, that's a different design from uh, how Ethereum has done this. Um, but I mean, that's more of a, I would say, peripheral property. Uh, the the first goal that we want to achieve is really in the ability to effectively allow programmability at the at the network and data layer, which is very, very important because it allows a lot of flexibility on how you can design your your economics for your smart contract. It's like effectively, you know, smart contract level sharding, almost if you, if you want to think of it uh, that way. Maybe that's not quite super correct, but it's it's the best analogy that I can possibly come up with in in one sentence, and uh, and that's just not the case for any other platform that we've seen out there. Okay. Uh, so, Stephen, you mentioned these um, subnets that Ava has, right? How do those yeah. compare? Are, would would you compare those? Are those akin to parachains or something like shards in ETH two? Uh, so, with the stateless model that you mentioned, how does that compare to something like ETH two, which also has the goal of being more stateless? Yeah. So, uh, so I think the biggest difference between you know, our model and something more similar to their model is that uh, for us, our our subnets are, are heterogeneous, which means that they aren't uh, necessarily running the same uh, the same VM or the same the same uh, I guess schema. If you're coming from database land, um, so ETH two at least you know correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, ETH two is, is planning on achieving scalability on the same kind of network with the same security guarantees and the same network guarantees across all of its shards. So what that means is that essentially they're trying to parallelize computation and increase their throughput by having nodes not need to validate the entire uh, the entire state. Um, and so that's that's very useful in, in some cases. Um, however, it's typically pretty difficult when there's a lot of like cross-shard communication, which on a blockchain, it then becomes very uh, important of how you're you're splitting things into shards. Um, and so, you know, from, from our point of view, you know, you're going to have something like, you know, the die chain or the die, uh, I guess, shard where, you know, everyone wants to be on the die shard because everyone wants to use die. And so all of a sudden, anyone that isn't on the die shard is going to have to be communicating with the die shard, uh, which is relatively expensive in most, uh, sharded systems. Um, however, with us. Uh, our viewpoint with subnets is that subnets are are heterogeneous, and so they they contain their own environment. So, for example, the EVM would live in its own subnet and would kind of, or so for us, like Ethereum is, is a is a subnet that that we're planning on doing, which is a spoon of Ethereum state. So, so that's uh, so that's like the big difference, really. So we have subnets based off of the functionality rather than you know just splitting the entire state. So that's like the main difference. Um, now to answer like your your stateless kind of uh, point, um, so stateless is is kind of a a different uh, beast entirely. So it's very important when you're when you're building a blockchain system that you have to understand that this thing's going to be alive for hopefully an extremely long period of time. So uh, it's an ever growing database. You can think of it that way. So you need to be able to kind of prune out uh, things that are no longer viable or like needed. So Bitcoin does this by using UTXOs. And so you only really need to care about the UTXO, the current UTXO set. As long as you can bootstrap into the current UTXO set, then you're able to kind of process transactions and, and make progress. Now there are like client side security guarantees that, you know, may require you to bootstrap the entire chain. Um, but for, we've 
seen that many people don't actually require that level of of security. Now it's you know still totally possible in everything we're doing, but I think for the happy path, most people don't care. Um, but there's other things that something like Ethereum does, which is account-based rather than UTXO-based. And so that actually isn't prunable. So uh, what that means is that whenever someone uses an account, uh, that state actually can never get removed. Otherwise, you would have a replay attack uh, potential. So uh, so there's like those kinds of decisions that go into VMs to make it so that you can have a uh, an easy bootstrap in and an easy sync. Uh, but that's kind of almost uh, orthogonal to, to subnets in like the overall idea. So I guess subnets are probably more comparable to parachains in the Polkadot model than to shards in the Ethereum model from your summary. Uh, does, I don't does... know. I don't know a ton about Polkadot. So I'll be straight up with that. Um, but yeah. Do you I think the quickest summary. Yeah, I think the quickest summary of parachains in Polkadot is that essentially it's just a heterogeneous blockchain that's connected over this uh, layer above, which is the Polkadot network? Uh, uh, not quite. So um, uh, first of all, the, the Polkadot network has uh, shared security. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we don't. Um, okay. It's, it, that's first. Second of all, the, the way to think of the subnet abstraction is that all the subnet is is a collection of validators. That's all it is. It's just, just a collection of validators. It's a set. Um, so a subnet can actually have multiple chains internally, and uh, each chain can have multiple different virtual machines. Um, really what this abstraction provides you is uh, is who gets to, for the first layer abstraction, very, very high layer is A, who gets to manage your data. And then within that uh, abstraction, you get to say, how is my data managed? So the who gets to manage my data is the subnet component um, that defines a set of validators. And then once you answer that question, it can be permissioned or it can be fully permissionless. You can say that this subnet is anybody can validate it. There is no requirements whatsoever for it. Or you can say that only special types of entities can validate it. And then once you answer that question, you have to answer the question of, okay, I am within this particular subnet. Uh, what is the mode or uh, how are we managing the data? Uh, so we answer the who manages the data. Now we have to answer how are we managing the data? And uh, the how uh, is answered via the any arbitrary collection of chains that can exist within the subnet, which implement any arbitrary virtual machine. Uh, that's the abstraction here. It's it's really there is effectively zero. Uh, we like there is there is nothing that's forced down anybody's throat here. It's just you have full control over everything. Uh, you get to manage whatever everything in, in however way you want. So if I want to launch a new subnet that represents uh, real estate, um, uh, holdings, uh, assets, then uh, that's trivial to do. And uh, that's not quite the same as, uh, for example, just having a parachain, uh, which is just a single blockchain, I believe, just a single uh, linear chain. And that parachain happens to implement maybe different execution environments. So maybe EVM versus something else. Or maybe Wasm. I'm not sure how many execution environments they, they they support, but that's the extent of the customizability of parachains. There's there's no more to it. So what binds these subnets together? Like what what makes it a subnet different from just another avalanche network that someone created randomly? Are, are subnets able to communicate with each other, or is it yes. is a subnet yes. just a fancy word for a new network? No, no, no. Okay, okay, got it, got it. Yeah, so they are able to communicate with each other. Uh, they're able to interoperate. Um, and uh, that interoperation is not uh, sort of uh, works out of the box, regardless of the of the virtual machine. There needs to be some wrappings done, uh, but it should be pretty straightforward. Uh, and uh, the communication is is the part here that, that matters. So these subnets can communicate with each other. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, typically speaking, because a lot of them would share the same um, uh, sort of set of validators, uh, they probably would, the, the communication will be pretty trivial. Uh, but the thing here is that, you know, we're not trying to solve for a shared security model because we, we think the shared security model is is just not something that people, I mean, it's just not something that, that makes sense. Um, so yeah. uh, so to us, it's more of like give freedom and uh, and responsibility of the of the subnet creators themselves to figure out who manages this, this thing. And if they want the security of like a fully permissionless chain, 
that's out there in public, then they can just launch on the on the the default Ava subnet. Uh, that one would be permissionless, and they can deploy on that one. But if they require more customizability, then they can create their own. Correct me okay. if I'm wrong. Here. So you have these. I want I want to I want to quick want to get a, like some type of um, make sure I'm right here. There are default subnets uh, on Ava as it currently stands, and these are mandatory to be a part of if you'd like to have a different subnet. Is that true? I think it used to be that way. Is it still that way? And what, and yeah, so, yeah, yeah. what so, are these subnets? Yeah, yeah. So it's just one default subnet is the main Ava default subnet is the permissionless one. So if you want to be part of the uh, uh, interoperability network, uh, you're going to have to be uh, part of the... Um, uh, of the main Ava subnet, uh, but otherwise there is no other sort of enforcements being done here. So that this enforcement is really to just make sure that uh, Ava, the default Ava subnet, maintains a high degree of uh, of security guarantee and permission. What do you do on the Ava subnet? Like, what's the what's the purpose of it, and how does it how does it give you that ability to have interoperability? Uh, the Ava subnet is the permissionless one. It's uh, it's the one that um, uh, it, it's supposed supposed to be the default one. Does most of the operations of uh, that you would think of, of Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, and, and so on. Uh, the the that default subnet also provides uh, some atomic swap operations that are needed for um, uh, for uh, different other non-default subnets. So any other subnets that come in the future. If they require, if they want to operate, if they want the interoperability, uh, that interoperability comes by uh, basically uh, posting some transactions on the on the default Ava subnet. It's effectively as a checkpointing mechanism, quick one. Uh, so that's where the default uh, Ava subnet comes in. Uh, it's just a coordination ledger, effectively. Yeah, just to jump in really quickly here. Uh, so in order for atomic swaps to uh, be reasonable, uh, both of the subnets that are trying to perform the swap uh, need to know like who the validators are of the other network. Um, and so the platform chain that is running on the default subnet acts as kind of like a shared space for those subnets to interact. So so that's kind of how they how we enable atomic swaps across these two different subnets. Um, yeah. So the Ava chain here is kind of akin to like the beacon chain and ETH2. It's it's a message passing system. Is, is that a correct statement? I would say they're very similar, but they're very similar. Yes, but they don't have the the same functionality. The beacon chain has uh, it shuffles things around. It provides some randomness. Yeah. This is not the case. Uh, so it's it's a reduced functionality beacon chain. That would be a, a good way to describe okay. it. And so if I want to do message passing, I just have to actually connect to the ABBA subnet so that the ABBA subnet can delegate messages to these different subnets. Correct. Yes. Okay. So it's, yeah. So it's like the postal service essentially. Effectively. Yeah. And uh, the ABBA, the main ABBA subnet also has the the metadata chain, which is effectively a list of all of the active subnets. It's just a registry of all that's active right now, who's validating what. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, if you want to, you know, connect to another subnet, you want to know who's the latest set of auditors, you basically just uh, check with the uh, main Ava subnet. That's where the, 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 the reference point is. How is this metadata stored? Is it in the blocks or is it in a smart contract? I think it's in the blocks. Uh, Steven can probably answer more on that. Yeah, it's basically in the blocks. Like we, it's a very thin VM. Like it doesn't have like, it's not like a, a very flexible VM like like Ethereum with like Solidity. It's it basically just allows for a couple different transaction formats. One's like, you know, add myself as a staker, you know, add myself to the subnet, create a new subnet, create a new blockchain. That's basically all all the the platform chain does. So and so the state you're tracking on that is basically just the current state of subnets and who's tracking them. Correct. Yeah. I didn't mean to say state so many times there, but it just comes out. <laughs> uh, I, are there is there a limit to how many subnets that can exist? Like with Polkadot, uh, there's a limit. There's a limit of parachains, and then people like basically are vying for their ability to um, use the shared security model of the Polkadot no. network. Is that is that no. the case here? No, yeah, no, no. You can create as many as you. I mean. You can create any arbitrary number of subnets and ch chains and so on, as long as you can pay for it. Yeah. Pay for it. 
yeah, like submit a transaction that sub that has the fees required to make it happen because uh, creating a new submit is an expensive operation. And that's in is, Ovid, is, correct? Is there... Yes. How's the cost model work for that? Is it a fixed price or does it get exponentially more expensive? Yeah, I mean, that, that can get very complicated. So we currently have a very dumb model of uh, just fixed price. Eventually, we're going to make it very, very uh, sophisticated. So uh, uh, one thing at a time. There's only so many battles we can we can fight at the same time. Yeah, in the, yeah, in the long run, we'll probably want to have some sort of rent-based model because maintaining that state is just going to keep growing. So we'll want to be able to remove it. So we'll probably want to go to some like rent-based model for that. But right now, it's just a straight fee, pretty dumb. Yeah. I mean, not just retaining state, but you have the problem of like every subnet added will add pressure onto the Ava subnet, right? Because every time a cross shard transaction is done, that would ha have to happen through the Ava chain. So the more of these subnets you have, the more potential for pre transactions through this chain would 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 grow. Sure. I mean, like the atomic transactions will likely have fees as well. So that's not as big of a concern, but it's more just like the the fact that the subnet exists and is being tracked by the, the chain. So are would transactions in a subnet be paid in a specific subnet token or also in AVA? Transactions inside of a subnet can have no fees, they can do basically whatever they want as long as the validators for that subnet are happy with it. Um, okay. So, yeah. It can so then if, anything. It, if a transaction then goes from subnet to another subnet and requires to have a fee paid on the Ava chain to have that cross shard transaction relayed, how, how would that work in fees? Uh, so, the actual atomic transaction requires fees. So something posted to the platform chain would require a fee. But so even if they had the same validator set, correct? Even if they have the same validator set, say for instance, like uh, me and five buddies decided we want to make two chains, uh, two, I don't know why that, so I said that, but like just two different, two different subnets um, that basically have, you know, maybe separate functionality. We have one for um, kind of smart contracts, another one for storage. And they're 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 very much intertwined, but optimized for those two two features. Uh, in that case, every time they talk to each other, they'd have to go through the Ava subnet in order to do so, despite having maybe like the exact same miner set. So, so this is actually very interesting. So currently, the uh, platform chain and the exchange chain, or the the P chain and the X chain, is what we call it. Um, they live in the same subnet, so we can actually perform uh, operations in a, in a slightly different way. So um, there are optimizations that you can use if you're two chains inside the same subnet. So as Kevin mentioned, has the same set of validators. That's all a subnet really is. Um, so, so there are like different operations that you can oh, use that okay. would potentially not like, involve Ava at all. Um, now I will, I will preface this, or I, I guess I will like just mention that like, not all of this is currently implemented. So on the, the atomic swap side between subnets, that's currently not in the client. Um, but intra subnet has been implemented between the P and X chain. So, uh, we're working on it, but yeah, this is, uh, yeah, it's the model. So technologically speaking, there's no reason to believe that that's not going to be the case. It just hasn't been done yet based on available resources and priorities. Yeah, I mean, we're working on it. Like <laughs> we, we've been uh, we've been pushing like, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week for, for a while. So we're we're pushing, we're working on it. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that there was no so confusion there. Where are we now? Like what's 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 the what's happened since we last talked and what are you currently like prioritizing? Uh, so currently we're working on uh, network stability stuff. So uh, we, we've been switching up our, our networking stack quite a bit. Uh, previously we had a, so apologies, cause I'm going to talk mainly about the Go client um, just because that's, that's my area of, of focus. Um, 
but we've been focusing on switching out the networking stack. We had a C++ networking stack for performance reasons, um, but the Go garbage collector kind of interfered with that and was giving us a bunch of uh, problems. So we ended up switching to a pure Go networking stack. Um, so that was a, a big change that we've done recently. Uh, in addition, we're we're focusing on kind of bootstrapping improvements and just overall stability. Uh, so that's kind of our main focus right now. Um, yeah. Is your new uh, networking stack libp2p, or are you guys writing something new? Uh, brand new there? So uh, for now, it's just a very thin, like it's a dead, simple, basically just go native networking. Uh, it's like not complicated at all. Uh, it's basically just, you know, best effort, send a message to this peer if you're connected to it. Um, I know that we've talked internally about looking at libp2p um, just because it, I think that's kind of the, the go-to, um, but we were, we were basically looking at uh, getting something up and running as quickly as possible. And so we just implemented a very thin networking stack for now. Yeah. What are the requirements okay. there? Like, what do you, what do you need um, clients to do in terms of the networking layer? That maybe is there any is there anything different in terms of uh, what requirements you have there? Uh, when when like thinking about like comparing it to other blockchain ecosystems and how they typically talk to each other in a peer to peer network. So for the most part, we just want to be able to connect to each other as well as possible and send messages. Uh, uh, because we're a you know async safe protocol, uh, the messages don't really, they don't need to be like guaranteed to be received or you know, anything like that, which of course is impossible to do, but you know, some people try it anyways. Um, but, uh, but we basically just needed a, a dead simple communication tool. Uh, I know that some people have, have gone down the route of like using like UDP exclusively in attempts to like decrease message latencies. Uh, we haven't really seen a need for that. I think that's for the most part, a micro-optimization, unless you are extremely network-bound, which uh, our consensus protocol uh, basically evenly distributes networking load, um, which is, it's very similar to proof of work in that. So for the most part, network is not uh, like a, it's not a very bandwidth heavy usage protocol compared to something like uh, a classical consensus protocol, so. But it seems like because of the way um, Avalanche works, there's usually multiple rounds or multiple times I have to query my peers for a specific, uh, for their state, right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So would, would that not cause it to be bandwidth heavy or would you only call that latency heavy? Uh, so so in, in, in consensus, you typically think about like, what's the number of messages or, or what's the number of bits asymptotically that you would uh, you have to send to peers. Um, so for a single consensus decision in, uh, in Avalanche, that's log n in the number of nodes in the network. Um, however, as more decisions like get added at the same time, we can pipeline that to be a constant time operation. Um, whereas something like, uh, something like you know, hot stuff or uh, tendermint, uh, that requires a uh, linear complexity. Um, so at least on one of the nodes. Um, so so for the most part, the the bandwidth is is evenly distributed and is relatively uh, relatively low. Um, yeah, I've always it's liked not, that it's about, not good. Yeah, I think I, I, the way I've always pictured this internally in my head, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that the way the network scales in terms of load is with the number of decision any given validator has to make. Because every single decision they have to make is based on a multiple rounds of um, random sampling of their network knowledge. So they, they, they say, hey, this group of people, what do you think about this? Another round, hey, different group of people, what do you think about the same thing, et cetera, until they come, mm -hmm. until they come to a conclusion with a strong mm -hmm. uh, confidence interval. And that scales really, really well with the size of the network because the, the number of people that they're querying and their knowledge of the network is, is is constant over time. It can differentiate because there's more people they can sample from, but it's it's the same. It's based on what they want to do. Um, whereas most traditional like Byzantine consensus algorithms, 
um, scale with complexity because you need to have an answer from everyone. And so as the number of participants grows, the, like the number of um, messages that pass across the network grows exponentially. And that's not the case with Java. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, I oftentimes like to think about it is uh, if, if anyone's taken like a, just a intro statistics class, they always talk about, you know, sampling a uh, sampling a population to kind of get like, like some expected value at some interval bounds. Um, and so that's very much the same thing that Avalanche does. So you don't need to sample the entire population to be very confident in what the, the population believes in a whole. So yeah. How much of the population do you need to sample, roughly? Like, what? How much of the population do Ava validators sample? Uh, so Kevin can talk a little bit about this because he knows a lot on the math side for like exact bounds. But uh, what was the question? Exact bound? How many nodes do you need to sample? Yeah, like how many? What percentage of the network do Ava nodes sample? It's actually not based on percentage. So uh, the um, if you can do some analysis on the on the hypergeometric distribution. Basically, what it says is something uh, kind of interesting, which is that the error bounds on a particular sample um, are really only dependent on well, not really, but let me just say really as far as you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, statistically significant, really. Uh, it's really only dependent on the sample size itself, not on it as a percentage of the network size or or anything else. It's just a raw number. So uh, it, what really matters here is what the sample size is in, in raw terms. Is it 5, 10, 20, 40, whatever it may be? It's entirely independent. Again, that's not totally true, but really, like, believe me when I say it's it's mostly entirely independent of the network size. Uh, so the network can be a million or, or 10 billion or 10 trillion, doesn't matter. Uh, you can ignore that for all intents and purposes and just focus on the, the sample size itself, whether that's five or 10 or 20. Um, and okay. uh, for, for, for reasonable parameters, a network, uh, a sample size of about 20 is more than sufficient. If you go to 40, uh, that's really, really sufficient. And that's like so it's a each, each iteration that you're, that you're sampling changes. And so you're not sampling the same people every single time, correct? Correct. Yes, yes. And each iteration creates more and more. So like there's actually a trade-off mathematically between latency and the sample size initially. So let me maybe make this uh, clear for everybody listening. So let's suppose off I start by sampling everybody in the network, uh, which is what typically most proof-of-stake systems work as. So that what is what I'll call a deterministic sample. I sample everybody and my error probability on what the true state of the network is, is exactly zero because I have sampled everybody. I have full information. So in order for me to get um, probability zero of error, uh, all I require if I'm sampling everybody is a single round. So the latency there is just one round. Um, the way that it works with uh, with Avalanche is that you trade off uh, those uh, that latency of one round for much smaller sample size. But the really nice thing that's kind of like a Hail Mary from math is that the sample size, uh, while it can decrease drastically, the latency does not actually increase that much, uh, which is a really great Hail Mary. Um, so, uh, you know, there is mathematically no difference uh, uh, between uh, sampling, let's say, 100 nodes versus sampling 2,000 nodes. The, the guarantee there is really, really close to each other, which means that I can just now save 20 rounds. So instead of you know doing, you know rather one round of um, uh, of uh, sorry one round of 2,000 nodes, I can do one round of 100 nodes, and I get basically the same mathematical equivalent. If I drop down to let's say 40 or 20 nodes, I get a little bit of error, but I can easily you know subsume that error and just completely squash it with just a few additional rounds. So the number of rounds grows very slowly as far as the uh, uh, the number of, uh, as far as the drop in in the sample sizes and how slowly it drops is actually it's a complicated formula but it, it's really really small it's like even it's like close to logarithmic even less than logarithmic so it's really really slow growth uh, so which is which is a really nice property so a fixed you know constant size sample of let's say twenty nodes per per iteration uh, done over let's say. Ten consecutive trials 
would be sufficient for most intents and purposes to provide people with really high security guarantees. Uh, and this would be independent of the network size. This is where kind of AVA wins. Uh, so given these small numbers, now you can toss at it a network of 1,000 nodes or 10,000 nodes. It doesn't really care. So, so given that um, Ava no, or an Ava node queries all these other other nodes, and it changes the set of nodes for every round that it queries. When, when I join the network, how does that look? Do I, as a node, just try to gather as many nodes as possible in the beginning that I can change this set, or yes, do I, so every round try to find twenty new peers? What what happens there? Yeah, so this is actually where we diverge uh, pretty heavily from um, from uh, uh, other proof of stake systems. Um, so you know, Bitcoin. Uh, uh, so that there's the bootstrapping problem, uh, which is different uh, in in proof of work systems from proof of stake systems. Um, proof of work systems, they the, the bootstrapping pro uh, uh, problem can be solved as long as you connect to one correct node, a node that truly has the view of the network. Uh, and as far as that correct node, you know, comes back and says, "Hey, here's the view of the network, the longest chain." You can you can verify yourself, and uh, you you should be good. Uh, but once you join the network, validation of transactions still requires that the majority of the nodes you're connected to, or rather the hash power, is uh, is correct. So bootstrapping is nice or in in proof of work, but it ultimately doesn't really save you much. It's not like you're still getting consensus by only trusting a single other node. Uh, so it's kind of a it's kind of a party trick. It's kind of a moot point. Uh, it kind of falls flat on its feet. On its feet. Um, whereas in proof of stake, uh, other systems have other projects have tried to desperately emulate this whole you know one out of n. As long as I trust one single node, uh, then maybe I can uh, I can connect to the correct uh, proof of stake network, and it's caused a rabbit hole of of just insane proportions. Uh, that we seem to not be able to get out of. Um, and uh, people have lost their minds on all slashing and things like that. And it's gotten down a really crazy rabbit hole there. Uh, our bootstrapping mechanism is is pretty straightforward, is we don't care about solving bootstrapping by just trusting a single node, because eventually you're going to have to trust some majority number of nodes. So we assume that when you're trying to uh, bootstrap into the network, you're connecting to a majority correct number of nodes. And as long as that's the case, that assumption holds, which in reality it almost certainly will, uh, then there's a very simple bootstrapping mechanism. All you effectively do is just download the state, get the, the minimum intersection between these nodes uh, that, that accumulates at least that half the, uh, the, the identities, and then you suddenly have the, the list of peers that you can connect to uh, and participate in the network. And then from that list of peers, this is what constitutes the latest active uh, staker set. And uh, that's where you sample from uh, after you join. So uh, that's that's really our bootstrapping and eventual operation on the network. Yeah, that, that was a really good answer. But I think uh, Dean was probably asking on a more like specific technical level, like does the node connect to all of the nodes at the same time, or does it attempt to kind of discover nodes as as needed? Was that was that what you were asking, Dean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, so. Uh, the node just eagerly connects to as many nodes as it can uh, right now. As long as the network doesn't become so large that that actually causes issues, uh, that's that's a totally reasonable uh, path. Um, and so that's that's kind of the route we've taken now. Uh, a node can connect easily to like ten thousand nodes uh, uh, or like thousands of nodes. Uh, with no issue. Uh, if we ever get to a, a point where we have like millions of validators, uh, then that's probably going to have to get revisited because it'll probably no longer be sustainable. Um, but as long as the network is, is like in a reasonable size right now, uh, there should be no issue with like running out of uh, connection file descriptors or anything like that. So that's that's what we currently use. So as this was as this conversation was going on, I've always had this mental model about. Ava works in terms of consensus, and it, it, it's occurred to me that it's um, the consensus version of the central limit theorem. Are you, is everyone familiar with what that is? Yeah, I give a that's exactly explainer? correct. And so, like for those that don't know what that means, um, it's basically like if you have an incredibly large um, population and you want to you want to figure out what the mean is, 
uh, you can do it and you can do it in a few ways. What you can do is you can do the uh, the way in which uh, Kevin just mentioned. You can sample every single person, but you have it, and you have a probability or uh, a confidence of one hundred percent exactly what that is. But that may be difficult depending upon the size of the number of people you have to sample, and that's what we're seeing as kind of consensus algorithms try and grow with the number of validators. Or you can do it by sampling small amounts of people multiple times. And the central limit theorem states that as with as you iterate the number of times you sample those people, you converge to the to the actual mean of the entire distribution very 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 quickly and with a strong confidence. And that's what you're doing. That's that's the general idea of what you're doing. Damn, you like, really uh, you really fucking killed me here. <laughs> oh, sorry. Am, am I am I allowed you, to you curse, can curse all you want? We don't care. Oh, okay, okay. Jesus Christ, <laughs> you really. Uh, yeah, you uh, you made this very God. Uh, we need to use you as our as our uh, technical spokesperson. Yeah, that was uh, that was a perfect uh, description, basically. Okay, good. Uh, like, all I think there's so much confusion about what's going on, and that's that's I it's know, not I a know. difficult concept. You no, just, it's, it's really a trade off. And, and what's nice about that is you have you can parameterize the system in terms of how many people you need to sample with respect to like what latency trade off you have, or like what how fast you get a confidence interval. Exactly. And here's the nice thing. Uh, when you do trade the size for additional latency, um, you can still do cool, you can still do useful work in between each one of these rounds. Uh, and that's where the amortization with Avalanche comes in. So it's not like, for example, uh, exactly as you said, though, the, the, the drop in the, the increase in, um, in rounds is not like proportional to the decrease in the number of nodes. So like if I go from, you know, 1000 nodes, down to 500, it's not now like my my uh, uh, number of rounds goes from one to two. It actually kind of stays still still stays at one, uh, almost at one. Uh, but even if I get to an additional number of, of rounds, um, I can still do useful work between each round, meaning that I can I can do a sample for one particular transaction, and then the next round I can uh, sort of pipeline the next transaction that references that previous one. And say, okay, uh, Corey pays Dean. That's one transaction. Then uh, Kevin pays Steven. That's another transaction. Instead of doing multiple rounds for both of these in parallel, instead I do Corey pays Dean first, and then I do uh, Steven pays uh, Kevin, which points to the Corey pays Steven transaction, uh, Dean transaction. And now I can effectively create a linear chain of these guys, which looks like repeated sampling. So effectively, every single every single transaction is only sampled once. So it's not even sampled multiple times in a row. It's just sampled once. So you end up reducing the amount of uh, nodes that you sample per query down to just some constant number, very small constant number, and you effectively get a single round per transaction, almost for free. Uh, so this is where where a lot of the magic happens. But you totally nailed it. It's actually once you kind of get this trade-off, it's super simple. It's like, and uh, your, this trade-off is exactly uh, uh, the reason why the basic primitive of Snowflake um, effectively is a generalized um, uh, method of describing basically every single quorum-based system. Uh, it just happens to be one where you basically trade off deterministic guarantees with probabilistic guarantees uh, in exactly the same way as if instead of sampling everybody in the in the set and getting their mean, in which case I have a probability zero of error. I know exactly what the mean is. I can instead uh, sort of uh, uh, trade off some of that uh, guarantee with a little bit of error, but still be pretty damn close to the mean. Uh, and I still get a whole bunch of other uh, benefits. So uh, that's where a lot of the magic happens, but it's pretty simple. The, ma the math is complicated, but it's the concept is very, very simple to explain. Yeah, Avalanche, at least the consensus protocol family is really simple, which is one of the reasons why I like it. Because it feels like, something which anyone who's probably thought about probabilistic consensus or consensus in a tiny distributed system has probably thought of something like this. It's it's like a very simple method of just gossiping your state and taking a sample size. Yeah, exactly. And I mean this is the this is what the quorum based systems already do, right? They just happen yeah. to do it with the entire system set. Yeah. So uh yeah Snowflake is a generalized version of all consensus. In fact if you do if you make Snowflake whether sample size is the network size, then you get one of the first well-known consensus protocols, uh, the um, uh, the Benor consensus protocol, 
uh, asynchronous consensus protocol from 1983 before even Paxos. Uh, it's one of the very first. Who, which almost. one was the first? Which one was the first? Oh no no no! I, uh, I think Ben Orr was was the first. But I say you almost get it. The only the only thing that Snow doesn't have is the uh, the random coin. Like, oh yeah, so, but, but yeah, yeah. That, yeah, it doesn't care about that. So that, but I'm, I'm talking just about the the quorum the quorum property. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it looks very similar to to Benor actually. Uh, it's a 1983 paper. It was the very first paper that solved um, a consensus in an asynchronous uh, system, uh, and it is from 1983. Uh, also, a Cornellian guy actually. Well, all right. Uh... What's next? Are we, where, how do we to wrap this down? Like, where are you guys going? What are you, what are you looking forward to? How do people get involved, et cetera? Yeah, so uh, we want people to uh, to start uh, uh, looking at what we have as far as like what the properties it achieves. Uh, I think I think it's a great time uh, for uh, for new systems to, uh, to that that have that have made a lot of noise. Um, hopefully, like us, to actually stick up to that noise uh, and uh, and deliver. Uh, I think we will. So this summer is going to be fun. We're going to be launching Incentivize Testnet uh, next week. Uh, we're going to be uh, going towards mainnet this summer. And uh, and uh, it's really going to be the fun. That's when the fun really starts, I think. And uh, we get to A, uh, in production, test this thing out, make sure that it gets some Lindy, Lindy effects under its belt. Uh, it's, uh, it's robust. And uh, we're building lots of applications on top that really especially benefit from low latency. So and and low transaction fees, so uh, it's um, it's you know I, I get a lot of haters from the Ethereum crowd because it's like and I'm going after Ethereum, but that's because it has issues. Like we're trying to solve those issues. Like <laughs> what do you want me to say? Uh, so it's it, it is where it is. So uh, I'm excited myself at least, and I don't share this view with everybody else at Ava uh, because Ava is is a pretty dis different set of people actually, and we all share different views. But I personally share the view of look, we have technology that can solve a lot of these issues. And I want to see applications that um, that are running fast and efficiently in a distributed way uh, on uh, on us. So uh, and they're fully backwards compatible with Ethereum and uh, EVM and so on. So that's going to be cool, I think. On that note, cool. The technology works potentially. It has potential to change a lot of the problems or solve a lot of the problems that we face in the currently implemented systems where value exists. How do you get people to move? Because it doesn't matter if people don't use it and put their value in it. How do you get that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, so to me, there is a, there's a certain set of properties uh, that are required to kind of make the secret sauce uh, kind of work and uh, and really marinate a little bit. Uh, and first property is uh, you need to make you need to propose a new system that really has incredibly low switching costs. Uh, if you don't have that already, let's say, let's forget about the other stuff to begin with. Um, so you need something that has uh, compatibility to the Ethereum virtual machine, the tooling works, the switching costs are super low. Validating the system has, even even that part has super low costs. You just run on your machine, there is no slashing, none of that. Um, across the board, there is not a single piece of what we've built that, frankly, I'm very proud of this, that like anybody can say, wow, this is so much work to get this going. Uh, it's it's going to be compiled all in Go very soon. It's, it actually already is. It's just basically Go run uh, a bunch of uh, scripts. You're already running a node. Boom. There's no slashing on the validator side. It's a very low risk. Uh, the uh, uh, you know running uh, applications on it. It's backwards compatible with Ethereum and so on. Okay, so that's the first that's the first uh, ingredient of the secret sauce. And then the second thing is uh, great. You provided uh, backwards compatibility to your new system you need to have a reason why people would want to switch ultimately. And uh, and that reason is, um, uh, well, number one, we uh, have a very fast engine that we can actually back up uh, our claims with. And uh, and it's it, it gives rise to applications or rather use cases, I would say, that uh, that currently can't really quite exist on, on, uh, on Ethereum. Um, Augur, for example, uh, is, uh, is having massive issues. They can't run certain kinds of... Uh, uh, trades because of the the massive confirmation times with Ethereum, uh, the costs on Ethereum are prohibitive. Um, you know, uh, it's it's just getting so expensive to run. You know, it's getting clogged down by by random stuff that don't matter. Uh, so these are all problems. Um, we need to get to that point where you know we have a hundred x better tech, and then it's really a matter of you know 
so we have backwards compatibility. We have a 100x sort of uh, better tech uh, uh, guarantee, whatever you want to call it. And then three, it's all about working with the right partners that accumulate sufficient network effects to be sort of self-standing. And uh, that includes not really working with the well-established partners initially on Ethereum, but with new up-and-coming ones and supporting those guys uh, that are building really cool new DeFi stuff. Uh, really nurture that that community deeply. Like we have absolutely no life, and uh, we don't plan to have a life for uh, the next foreseeable few years until this thing just is self-sufficient and is running and is growing by itself. Uh, and that means just really supporting our devs with uh, with grants, with our attention, with uh, uh, nurturing them. We have lots of talented people internally that can that can help out teams. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of cash resources as other, you know, maybe projects have raised in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But uh, I think uh, I think we're still uh, competitive as far as the benefits that we provide. So, uh, you know, th that's, I think, the, the the stuff in the secret sauce and also creating things that just simply don't exist anywhere else as far as applications go. And we have a bunch of those in the pipeline. Um, and then the rest of the final ingredient in the secret sauce, I think, is just a little bit of luck. So hopefully we uh, we get that as well, and um, and then we we got a good recipe going. All right, Dean, you got any more questions? I, I had one more, but I don't know if this is going to go on a tangent. You you mentioned that you guys don't slash. So how how do you, how do you do that? How do you handle civil resistance? How do you assure that like all these guarantee that you have all these guarantees without slashing uh, validators or Byzantine validators? Oh, I can get into hours for this. Um, what? How much time do you have? Uh, you. Uh, uh, what are the guarantees that you want to provide that you think you you are providing with slashing? That's a good question. So the first one will be probably civil resistance, right? We okay, we don't so want. Why do you think civil resistance? Uh, I mean, BFT systems have been being have been built since the eighties. Precisely to not care about that small percentage of nodes that are misbehaving, but, but those weren't Byzantine. Um, those weren't Byzantine systems in a permissionless environment, right? So, so the problem is like in a permissionless environment, when any anyone can spin up a node where it's so easy, how do you ensure that not the majority is Byzantine? Oh, I mean that that's done via stake, right? So you have to accumulate that stake in order for you to be able to. Uh, uh, spin up a whole bunch of nodes. You can spin up a lot of nodes on Ava. It's just you won't have a lot of stake uh, attached to them. So okay, so, so they're still staking. There's just no slashing of the stake. Correct. Correct. Yes. 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 So, so what happens to a misbehaving node? You just kick it out of the system. No, you just ignore it. It just does its okay. own thing. So I guess the easy way to say is probably that you don't need slashing because you have this stake and there's probably a high time for you to be able to transfer this stake to a new node for the to make sure that other people don't ignore you anymore uh what do you mean by a, a high time like there there's a there's a overhead on you having to exit your stake and then restaking it to get it to another node where you can start misbehaving again to mislead or to be a byzantine node I mean, even if you do that, even if there is almost zero switching costs to that, which that's not true. Um, even if that was the case, though, um, as long as you don't accumulate some large percentage of, uh, of the stake, then it doesn't really matter. You're basically entirely ignoring the system. That's the whole point of BFT systems. Um, so uh, that that and that happens to be the case. I think what slashing does uh, is. You know, prevent those that uh, you know maybe are thinking about doing misbehavior to not really do mis any misbehavior. But um, um, ultimately, that's really not saving you anything because you already had the BFT protections in place. It's kind of like I don't know, you put locks in your house and then inside the house you still have a gun. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, maybe it's not a great analogy. It's not a great yourself. analogy. <laughs> it's not a great one. But it, it it's not. It's like you already have you already have the protections in place. You're just creating additional drama and complexity internally uh, with your with your slashing. So uh, it's really not necessary. And here's the thing: um, ultimately, if you end up breaking the uh, threshold guarantees of the BFT system provides, so the first layer of defense, which is the most important one, slashing does not prevent you. It does not save anything. Um, if I accumulate majority stake in a system, um, I can actually make the minority stake look like the misbehaving ones, and I can kick those guys out, which is crazy. Yeah. So you, you like, I—that's crazy. Like, not only have you not misbehaved, <laughs> you 
you're totally good. I can make you yeah. lose all your money because I can make you look like the minority uh, member in the system. So it, it really saves you nothing. Yeah. So, so I guess the protection in this scenario is that the minority just forks. The minority just forks. Yeah. But, uh, like, but, but by definition, cons- that's not really... Uh, that's not really a protection, right? Like you could be double spending. Like how long uh, in a pre- real estate system, uh, if that were to happen, uh, you probably would have to have a whole bunch of social, like Skype calls to make sure what the hell just happened, undo transactions, issues have already arised. And then eventually you somehow fork, which is fine. Uh, and you undo all the issues. But uh, I mean, this thing can happen in a, in a system that is also not doing slashing in any case. If you, ha- if you end up going down to Skype calls, then uh, whatever problems you had in a in a non-slashing in a slashing system, you can also solve in a uh, non-slashing system. Yeah. So one of our one of the people at Ava, uh, Philip Liu, uh, he he says that proof of stake is the cockroach of civil control because you can always just fork out the person that's doing the attack and then force them to rebuy. Uh, whereas in proof of work, you're required. You could just like switch to a new chain. So. Uh, I, I like that analogy. Between, I think it's so. the difference between internal and, and, and external uh, resources being staked. Yeah, exactly. Correct, yes. Between, which is the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. What I'm interested That's in, exactly which right. I don't quite understand, is, uh, and you're right, this did go on a tangent, but it, it piqued my curiosity here. Like, <laughs> um, Say we have some type of malicious node in the network with, a, with, with, with some amount of stake. How much effect do they actually have on consensus, if the way rounds work is any individual node requests state from a, a random sample in, in the set, and then does it over and over again with each with each of those random samplings changing with each iteration, like it, it doesn't seem like it's very easily deterministic on like how much an individual malicious node can control uh, this like the state of something going one direction because you have that kind of like avalanching like it's called avalanche for a reason right because like that the random sampling guarantees that like once once you have a tip and consensus in any given direction it goes that direction very quickly with the number of iterations yes yeah so you would have to have a pretty significant stake in order for you to to uh, prevent uh, that tipping over uh, and uh, yeah, it's not really in the number of nodes. It's really in the in the uh, in the stake that you control. I mean, uh, the point of Ava is that eventually, once the stake is very highly distributed, uh, it could potentially be in the in the hands of uh, you know thousands of of nodes. Then we're we're able to sustain that growth pretty easily. So it's it's future proof. Ooh, that's that's that leads me to another big question, which I've always wondered: <laughs> uh, distribution. And- Yes, I, I've always yes. been curious about distribution of Ava and the underlying assets in, in the ecosystem. That is going to have a tremendous effect, especially because of what of you just said on consensus. Of course. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, distribution is huge; it's critical. Uh, we are, we are uh, uh, going. Uh, uh, we're trying to find every single possible source of distribution channels that we we can find. Uh, we're even considering uh, uh, interesting things like POW. Actually, so we might allocate certain uh, Ava tokens uh, to be mineable uh, via POW, and it's kind of like a fair open uh, thing. We can uh, we're also in, uh, looking at that work lock type of uh, distribution methods. But uh, the thing here is that basically we're start trying to pi- we're trying to serialize all of these one after another. So it's not going to be everything all at once. Uh, there's going to be public sales. There's going to be uh, there has been some private sales. Uh, there's going to be developer grants. There's going to be uh, which actually there are already developer grants. Um, there are uh, sort of more non-developer grants that have uh, happened. Um, there is going to be distribution via these POW and work lock type mechanisms. Um, we are very concerned about distribution ourselves, uh, and we want to make sure that there is not a single person out there that can point it up and be like, "Oh, this is a pre-mined thing," and uh, all that kind of stuff. They're going to so do that uh, just to get over that. Uh, they're, they're, I know, I know, <laughs> they're they're going to do that. But I would love to just be like, "Yeah, you say that about Ava, except that the the data eventually, you know, maybe three four years from now is going to say that it's even more distributed than Bitcoin." Uh, so that's that's my dream. That's really what I want. I uh, I don't care about. Uh, the money aspect of this thing, I want to be able to just be like, holy crap, this thing is more decentralized and more robust than Bitcoin uh, and put that hat on. Um, I don't care about any other thing that comes with it. 
All right. Dean, anything else before I before we no. go off on significantly more tangents? Because we probably could. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'll definitely message either Kevin or Stephen. I've been in contact with them anyways once I have a few more questions. But I feel like our listeners will probably no longer want to listen to all of those. <laughs> I mean, for full disclosure, like uh, hashing it out. Ava is a sponsor of Hashing It Out as it currently stands. It did not influence any of the questions we have now or our particular interest in it. I think just like our interest in willingness to kind of uh, dive into this and ask questions maybe sparked the ability to get the sponsorship in the first place. But like, like this is interesting. We care about it and it's new. And so like that's basically where I want to leave this. Before my Are we sponsors? Canceled. I didn't even know it. Are we sponsors yeah. of you guys? Congratulations. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I was on there so nice. on here, you know, like, <laughs> oh, interesting. Interesting. I don't even know. I frankly did not know. Well, uh, otherwise we would have gone ETH Maxi on you. Okay. Well, <laughs> next time let's go more ETH Maxi. I want to, I want to handle all the tart questions. You want to argue? I do want to argue. That. Yes. Let's, let's bring some of the ETH Maxis well, here. It's not like, I want like you've been on five times. I'm sure we can uh, like bring you back on sometime soon. Yeah, probably. I need Antipros, whoever that guy is. I need that guy here. That's that's gonna be fun. That's gonna be a fun conversation. Whoever that guy is, I, I need him here. That that'd be great. We'll work on trying to f- facilitate some panel where we moderate you versus sweet F Maxis. Kind of like the oh Jesus, I don't know if, I don't, oh, Jesus. I don't know if you and the Nick episode can be can be that, but more that. No, <laughs> that was that was a fun episode. You know, I want I want to just uh, I, w- I want to go after actual like full on ETH maxis uh, and uh, just have a batshit insane conversation. That's gonna be fun. Honestly, right. Kevin, I'm kind of happy that you guys entered this space because or like became more serious with Ava because all the ETH maxis are no longer on my back. They're all on you guys now. <laughs> <laughs> my Twitter experience has been so wholesome, so peaceful. <sighs> Oh my God, they're on me. Well, to be fair, uh, they're not bothering me because they can't bother me too much nowadays. I make uh, I make noise against the uh, Ethereum for a real reason. Like you just can't. Say, like it's it's very objective noise, right? It's like look, well, high fees, all that kind of stuff, and there's nothing they can say. Yeah. But um, I, I completely agree. Like I, I've been, I was commenting on Ethereum a lot because also I just think that ETH two is practically going to work. And I, I got people or I got some ETH Maxis DMing me saying that I'm not doing good marketing for Ethereum and that's going to cause our bags to dump. Oh, Jesus. I was like, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a This fuck. is why I brought yeah. Dean on the show. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's wrap this up. Uh, thanks well, for coming on. Um, Thank we'll you add as much as we can that I remember to add to the show notes. And I'm um, looking forward to seeing what you guys build and, and hearing you uh, come on the show again later. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Dean. And thank you, Corey. And also, thank you, John. You've been quietly listening, but thank you for coming in. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.